uh, we're, as Jordan has said a couple of times, we're in a series of messages that we're calling The Generous Life. And we're talking about being a giver. Interestingly, we're using as our text, as we always do, the Bible and, and a book written by a business professor, uh, Adam Grant, and it's called Give and Take. You'll hear more about this in a little while. But um, Leo is going to read us the biblical part of our text. It comes from 1 Timothy. You could stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God. So 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. And then we'll skip down to 17 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Thank you, Leo. You may be seated. Uh, so, the generous life, today what we're going to do is look in particular at, or more particular, at us and our setting and our context, because there are words more particularly to Northern Virginians that we need to hear in this whole conversation about giving and, and we're going to look today at three, I think, shocking truths that spill out of the passage that Leo read for us. And part of it is kind of understanding the context of that passage. We'll get there in a second. But three shocking truths that spill out of the passage that uh, Leo read for us. Before we do that, I want to... Um, set the larger context for this conversation. Again, remember, if you've been with us, in Give and Take, uh, Dr. Adam Grant identifies three different, what he calls reciprocity styles, three different ways of interacting, three different ways of transacting in relationship, three different ways of doing this with one another. He calls them taker, matcher, and giver. And this is not unique to Adam Grant. And takers are uh, people who like to get more than they give in all of their interactions with others. They tilt reciprocity in their own favor as much as they can. Matchers, matchers operate on the principle of fairness. Their relationships are governed by even exchanges of favors. Okay, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Then givers, givers are others-focused. They tend to provide support with no strings attached, and we found the surprising truth in the first and second weeks when we talked about this topic, we found the surprising truth that over the long run, givers succeed. The old adage, nice guys finish last, turns out that's not necessarily true. Well, today, we want to talk a little bit more 
to us. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm asking permission before we begin. Even if you don't give it, we're going to do it anyway. I'm going to step on our toes a little bit today. So, number one shocking truth about giving from a place of plenty. The number one shocking truth, and you're going to hear this spill out of the warnings that Paul gives, and, and ultimately the command that he gives, the number one shocking truth about giving from a place of plenty is that it's dangerous. Now, this is, this is counterintuitive, really. We think that we, we, need to, we need to collect as much as we can. That then will enable us to be givers. But turns out that giving from a place of plenty is dangerous. When I, when I talked about this idea this week with Diane, she kind of pushed back on me a little bit. And I have to admit, when I first started thinking about this and thinking about this topic and, and looking at what Paul said here, I was going to say this morning, giving from a place of plenty is challenging. And then I realized that, that that's, not strong, that's not a strong enough statement to capture Paul's sentiment here. It's dangerous to give from a place of plenty. First of all, because it's dangerous, hold on, don't miss this. It's dangerous to live in a place of plenty. And by way of reminder, we live in a place of plenty. If you need some inspiration for that, if you're thinking, you know, I'm not like the rest of these people, Ed, I, I, want, I want you to consider that the median annual income in India, according to Wikipedia, is just under $4,800 a year, $4,800 a year. The average annual income in the Congo is just under $785 a year, $785 a year. And I picked those two countries because we have many people in our part of our larger congregation who are from India originally and from the Congo originally. It becomes pretty obvious when you consider the rest of the world and the rest of human history that we live largely like kings and pharaohs. We are wealthy. And that's a, that's a dangerous space emotionally and spiritually. It's not an ungodly space. It's not impossible to live wisely and purposefully in a place of plenty. It's not impossible to live a Christ-honoring life in a place of plenty. I know some of you do it very, very well. It's just dangerous. And this is a shocking truth and one that we don't often consider, but it's true. Jesus himself told us plainly, Matthew 19, 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we're rich people. Now, Jesus spoke to an agrarian culture largely. It's, it's estimated that 90% of Jesus' original audience lived hand to mouth. However, again, we don't. We have more in common with the Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus uh, than we do with Jesus' immediate audience, at least socioeconomically. Ephesus was a, was a wealthy Roman province, and that's why Leo read 1 Timothy 6 for us this morning. 1 Timothy was written to Timothy, and he was the leader of the church in Ephesus. And, and that letter gives us some very important insight into giving from a place of plenty. So let's walk through the first paragraph, and I think you'll see what I'm saying. Uh, verse 6, 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. This is how Paul begins to address the topic of money and money usage for these Christians. Evidently, the real key to real gain is godliness with intentment. It's not trade with Rome or trade in colored clothing. It's not the stock market or real estate. Evidently, the real key to real gain is godliness with contentment. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. And here he seems to have a couple of things in mind, right? First of all, he wants to remind us that everything we have comes to us as a gift. We didn't earn it. We brought nothing into the world. And I think he's reminding us that all of our stuff, uh, everything that we spend so much time and energy collecting and gathering and, and securing our lives with all of our stuff, it can't possibly be the point. We work and we worry and we stress like it's the point, but it can't possibly be because we take nothing with us when we leave the world. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, listen, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If we really listen to what God is saying here, this, this has the effect of dislodging most of what drives us. Most of what stresses us, most of our sleepless nights, he's saying, in effect, if we have the basics, we'll be content with that. And that's liberating. I had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago who uh, he wanted to make the point to me that uh, he actually had written notes for himself about things he wanted to talk about with me. And one of those notes is he literally wanted to go over this. He wanted to make the point that um, we don't have real problems. Those of us who live here in uh, his term, cushy northern Virginia, we don't have real problems. Okay, that's a little cynical. We do have real problems. But stay with him. We don't have real problems. What do you mean, I said? And to illustrate his point, he, he had this, uh, he, he mimicked for me an imaginary conversation between himself typical Northern Virginian, and, you know, maybe a person who's part of the majority world, third world, or, or maybe with the Holy Spirit, and the conversation goes something like this, oh, I can't believe it. My car, you know, it's going to cost so much. I, I, I took it in, and I can't believe the reverse. Wait, wait, you have a car? Oh, oh, I, I can't believe, you know, our roof, uh, every time it rains, it just pours on my deck. Wait, 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 you have a house? You have a deck? If we have the basics, we'll be content with that. And then verse 9 and 10. Listen to the danger. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's dangerous to live in a place of plenty. It's not impossible. Paul doesn't say money is the root of all evil. No, the warning is for those who love money. The warning is for those who, quote, want to get rich. They're eager to get rich. But he offers this warning specifically to people who are living in a place of plenty because it's dangerous to live in a place of plenty. It's so easy to fall into those temptations. 
And we don't typically think of it that way. For most of us, this, this life we have, that for most of us, this is the goal. We need to be reminded that this is emotionally and spiritually dangerous. Now, is the opposite true? Is, is it better to be poor? Of course not. Christianity is not communism. I love what John Wesley used to say. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Of course we should want to do well. Of course we should want to take care of ourselves and those we love. We've talked about that over the previous weeks. But it's just dangerous to live in a place of plenty. And we are naive to forget that. All right, shocking truth number one. It's dangerous to give in a place of plenty. I'm going to give you a second reason for that. The second reason that, and I'm I'm spending more time on this one than we will on shocking truth two and three. The second reason that I think it's dangerous to live in a place, uh, to give in a place of plenty is because the atmosphere of plenty inhibits giving in some unique ways. The atmosphere in which we live inhibits giving in some unique ways. For example, let me give just one. When we live in a place of plenty, we are constantly tempted to look ahead of ourselves or beyond ourselves at at what we could be doing, at what we could be having because it surrounds us instead of looking just to our left and right at the needs around us at our elbows. And remember, remember, givering, giving to others, givering is other-focused. It's about looking out to the needs of others right beside us The place of plenty pressures us to constantly be looking ahead of us, just beyond us. This inhibits the giver instinct in us. Those of you who've known us for years, you've heard me say this before, but Diane and I moved to Northern Virginia more than 20 years ago. Before we lived here, we lived in a a resource-challenged neighborhood in the Boston area, a very resource-challenged neighborhood. And Diane and I uh, moved into and then had our children in uh, a home that was about uh, just under 1,600 square feet. It was bitter cold in the winter in our house. And it was impossibly hot in the summer in our house. And there was nothing we could do about it. Because no matter what you poured into our house, it just warmed or cooled the neighborhood. And yet, uh, Diane and I were, okay, Sometimes in the middle of January in Boston, we were miserable. But, but for the most part, we weren't miserable. We were young and in love, and we had the nicest home anywhere in sight, anywhere in the neighborhood. When we first moved to Northern Virginia, or considered moving here, I have to tell you, we drove around our neighborhoods. Some of you have heard me say this before. We drove around our neighborhoods, and our mouths were agape. Everywhere we drove, we thought, holy smokes, does one family live in that house? We were stunned. I kid you not, I have a very distinct memory of about three years later, Diane and I walking through our neighborhood in Ashburn and me turning to her one day and saying, you know, we need a deck on our house like that one. Because when you live in a place of plenty, you are constantly pressured to look just beyond you and just above you. And that challenge is givering in some unique ways. The atmosphere of plenty inhibits giving in some unique ways. This may be why God's Spirit chose the Ephesians, a people in a setting somewhat like ours, to offer these warnings. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The atmosphere of plenty is a dangerous place to try to be a giver. The second shocking truth about giving from a place of plenty is more obvious, but really equally shocking, I think. Listen to this. Simply put, the second truth about giving from a place of plenty is we must do it. We must do it. So there are times when I soft pedal that, honestly. I'm not going to this morning. We must do it. We must consistently make choices that lean in the direction of giving. Our time, our talent, and our treasure. We must, if we live in a place of of plenty, we must be givers. Now, if you, you were here the first week of this series, you may remember I introduced you to David Hornick. David Hornick is a venture capitalist who has who lives in a place of considerable plenty. His life is much more comfortable than mine and Diane's. He uh, has invested in many of the tech stocks that he was early investor, initial investor, in many of the companies that drive our world today. Uh, He is well known in the venture capital industry, and he is a giver. He was one of the superheroes in Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. So Adam Grant identified four or five people that are very, very successful, and they've done it as givers, and he used them as superheroes. So I got in touch with David Hornick. I want you to hear the letter that I wrote him. I, 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 I wrote David on LinkedIn. I said, David, I'm the pastor of a mid-sized evangelical church in suburban Washington, D.C. Quick question, would you be willing to be interviewed in any format? I believe churches of our ilk are typically known as collectors. We measure attendance, buildings, and budgets, sometimes obsessively. People could be forgiven for believing we are takers. This is deeply unfortunate since I believe our founder pointed in the exact opposite direction. I just finished reading Give and Take, and I was taken by your story and your heart. So could you take 30 minutes, Zoom, email? I'll come to see you if necessary and bring a camera. I want to interview you and show it to my congregation as a compliment to a series on generosity that I'm preaching this fall. Glad to give you more info as needed. By the way, I signed up for LinkedIn Premium solely to enable this email, parentheses. This part was an attempt at manipulation. How did I do? (laughs) And he wrote me back. This is a guy who meets with billion-dollar companies, and he wrote me back and said, sure. So next week, I'm going to give you a couple of clips that are I hope instructional for us, but this morning, I want you to watch just a clip. This is the very beginning of my interview with him. You saw the last part of our interview, the first week of this series. I want you to see the, fir- the very first opening of the interview, and this is really not for instruction so much as it's for inspiration. And I want you to listen, parents, I want you to listen, but I want you to listen as, uh, I want you to listen for how David defines givering, how he talks about it. So listen to, my, listen to the first part of my interview with David Hornick. Adam Grant, in his book, Give and Take, identifies you as one of the giving superheroes. So uh, what made, uh, what was the soup that made David Hornick a giver? You know, that's, that's a complicated question. I think in the end, 
everything about one's upbringing leads one to the decision, do you want to be a giver or a taker? Do you think that the world would be a better place or you'll be more successful if you uh, pay it forward or if you extract value in, in those conversations? And I, I've ne it's never been a question to me. I've always and been- it, Was it instinctive for you, David, or were, were there choices? I believe this is the way to be a better human being or the way to be more successful or- um, I mean, it's certainly, it's always choices, right? Every day is a set of choices. Sure, Every sure. day you sit down and you get a set of emails, right? And you say, oh, I've gotten this email about being a giver. Do you want to record a conversation about it? Yes, that'd be great. I'd be happy to do it. Or no, I don't have time. Or how is that going to benefit me, right? And so I think that uh, I was, I grew up in a household that believed in, um, in trying to make the world a better place, right? That your job on the planet was to leave the world a better place than uh, when you arrived, <laughs> which, and it could be in a small way, it could be in a big way, right? That's a very big, that's a highfalutin expectation. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna go transform the universe. It's just, I'm going to leave it better than I found it. And so that's step one. I mean, it's hard to be a taker who thinks that he's leaving the planet a better place while you're extracting value, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then just through my life, I've always found interactions with human beings to be the most satisfying aspect of, of living. And so again, how, do you, how can you be someone who's extracting value and still think you're going to have these exciting, engaging, fulfilling relationships? The relationships are about, uh, about helping others and then getting help yourself. And so um, I think it's just been a natural process where I think that uh, I've found relationships and building community to be so much more valuable than this idea of transactions and uh, that I've been naturally someone who's given more than take. Did you notice how David identified being a giver with leaving the planet a better place? And even cooler and more surprising in my mind, he identified being a giver with building relationships. Now, now let's look at Paul's second paragraph. And I, I, I think he's got some ideas that are very compatible with David's, frankly. Verse 17, uh, Leah read this for us. It says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who ri richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. First of all, this verse reminds us that God is not the pleasure police. He's not looking for whoever's having a good time just so he can snuff it out. He, did you see that? He, he provides us with everything, quote, for our enjoyment. But again especially those of us who live in atmospheres of plenty, we have to be warned not to be arrogant, not to put our hope in wealth. And he offers a very practical reason, doesn't he? Because wealth is just uncertain. Our, our hope is a precious thing, and we've got to invest it in something solid, something certain. So let's invest our hope in God, who, quote, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then verse 18 Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, sometimes Paul uh, encourages his listeners, and, and even in this letter, he encourages Timothy to encourage people. And sometimes he, sometimes he instructs. And in this letter, he even encourages Timothy to instruct his listeners. And sometimes he urges. But here, he commands. 
or it can be translated charge. So this letter was originally written in Greek. And I, I have a little bit of facility with Greek, um, which proves, first of all, that I'm sophisticated. Second of all, I'm spiritual. And so I decided to do some work this week on Greek to find out what the nuances are. What, is, what does this word really mean? And I dug into it and I found out that the word really means command. We must do this, especially those of us who live in a place of plenty. We must give. I've given bad advice over the years, and I want to confess that and apologize for it. I've had young couples, and many times, and others, but young couples come to me over the years, and, ooh, you know, we're not in a place right now where we can give. And I've said something like, oh, don't worry about it right now. Get your life in order. Wrong! If we live in a place of plenty, we must give. Look, you and I must give of our time. That's why I felt this renewed energy and passion about talking, I'm sorry, but about talking about volunteering at Gateway. Sign up. Those of you who are young families, you're thinking, we're doing so much with our kids right now, we can't help kids. No, give. There are those of you who are, who are uh, empty nesters. We did our time with children. Wrong. You're also thinking, you know, I would like to, uh, some of you are thinking, I'd like to be one of those couples that mentors young families. Well, how do you think that happens? It happens when you serve them. We must give our time. Mark Batterson calls this the uh, when-then myth of giving. When I've got it all together, then I'll give. Giving doesn't work like that. You and I must be people who give our time. We've, we've, uh, we've got to hang out with our neighbors. We've got to serve our neighbors. We've got, to, we've got to be people who give our time. Secondly, you and I must be people who give our experience and expertise, and you've got a lot of it. Give it away <clears throat> to co-workers, to those who are behind you in the field. And we must be people who give our money. If you're connected to Gateway, give to Gateway. Give to causes that inspire you. This is not optional. For those of us who live in a place of plenty, you must do this. You are commanded to do this. We must be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. I, I, look, I know that some of you, somebody here is thinking, Ed, I don't, I don't, I don't live in a place of plenty. I'm, 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 I'm not like some of these other families. And aside from reminding you that the average annual income in the Congo is $785 a year, I'm, I'm not going to challenge that. I, I'm really not. That, that might be true for someone here or someone listening. But, but, you know, that doesn't change anything about what we've said today, except that it, it may take some of the mustard off of how I said it. And it changes absolutely nothing about the last shocking truth about giving from a place of plenty. The third shocking truth might be the most moving for me about giving from a place of plenty is that, is that givering here is an investment in eternity. Being a giver here is an investment in eternity. I mean, listen to this, verse 19. In the same way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 
When I was in college, uh, my college had this program where you could go study overseas, and, and I wanted to do that one semester. They had this house in France that I had heard people talk about. You go over and live for a semester, you study while you're there, and I thought, well, that sounds like an awesome adventure. So, they're, and they're desperate for students to do it every semester. So I go to my uh, French professor and I say, hey, I had no idea how I could possibly pay for this, but I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in studying abroad. Remember, parentheses, they are desperate for students. And she looks at me and she says, you just don't know anywhere near enough French to do this. Uh, so uh, the thing is, when we, when we practice giving, we are becoming fluent in the language of heaven. We're practicing for eternity. But what Paul says here, is even more dramatic than that. He tells us that we are actually making an investment in eternity when we give. I want you to imagine telling one of Paul's original readers, one of his pre-computer age readers, that, you know, you could do something right here and now on this thing called a keyboard, and, and it, would, it would actually result in an investment on the other side of the world, thousands of miles away. They would have said, What? How in the world can I do something here that, that plants a stake in something thousands of miles away? Impossible. In the same way, it's difficult for us to imagine, to conceive that something we do in the here and now is an investment in another dimension, in a, in a time beyond time. But it is. Okay, look. I want to... Why did he bring this up in the context of this church again? Why bring it up here? Maybe because people who live in a place of plenty need this reminder. Now again, there are times throughout church history when people needed to be reminded of the here and now. My grandmother used to say, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And remember the quote from John Wesley, save all, give all, earn all you can here and now. Save all you can here and now so that you can give all you can here and now. Sometimes we need to be reminded that... We, we, we should do the best we can to take care of ourselves and those we love. Sometimes and in some places, we need especially to be reminded that we, we must work for good and for justice right now, here and now. Sometimes and in some places, we especially need to be reminded to leave the world a better place than we found it here and now. But we also need to be reminded that this, 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 this world we've created for ourselves here in Dulles South, the here and now. This is not the whole story. And I suspect that people who live in a place of plenty especially need that reminder. We have worked so hard at securing our here and now, and we've been pretty successful at it. We need to be reminded we will live forever. This is only a small fraction of our life. And, and through our givering here, we literally lay up a treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, the age during which we will spend the overwhelming majority of our life. There are three shocking truths about giving from a place of plenty that people like us need to keep in mind. One, giving from a place of plenty is dangerous, mostly because places of plenty challenge giving in some very unique ways. Two, so we need to be reminded that those of us who live in a place of plenty must give. Three, giving is an investment in eternity. Imagine that I give you some commodity and I say to you, you know, you can enjoy it for the next 30 seconds or you can enjoy it for the next 60 years. Uh, I'll take 60 years. 
Giving is that kind of investment. All right, here's our homework for this week. All God's people. Homework assignment number one, come next week ready to give something on Sunday morning. It might be a specific word for, I don't want this to be casual. Oh, that person looks like they need encouragement. That as well. But I want you to have someone in mind. It might be something physical. It might be a gift card or a gift. I've seen a few gifts exchanged. I want you to come next week ready to give something to someone on Sunday morning. And if you're at home, you be ready to give during the giving moment. Secondly, I want you to think about how you can serve a neighbor or a coworker this week. What can you give to a neighbor or a coworker this week? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love the world so much that you gave. And you have the entire universe as an expression of your giving. It's overwhelming. Every good gift comes from you. And so, we praise you and bless you for all your good gifts. And Lord, I pray that um, you will protect us from, especially this morning, any overstatement on my part. I pray, Lord, that you will drain out of anything that we have heard or felt any manipulation or guilt. I pray instead that we will be moved to act and to make choices. It's always about choices. To make choices that are consistent with your image in us, the great Generosaurus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.